0: And our reading this morning is James chapter 1, verses 19 through 27. Uh, This is the word of the Lord. Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls." If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. This has been the reading of God's word. Please be seated. I am going to start this morning by asking a question that is, I think, a really challenging question It's maybe a little bit provocative, but it is an important question. And there might even be some in this room who are really, really struggling with this question. Or maybe you have struggled with this question. And that is, does any of this make a difference? Does any of this make a difference? And by this, I think in particular, I'm referring to being a Christian. Does being a Christian make any difference at all? Any difference to how we live our lives, how we treat others, what we value, what we prioritize, how we spend our time, how we spend our money, what we live for? I mean, I think that's a really, really important question. It's a good question to ask individually, of course. It's a good question to ask as a community, as church. And I think it's this kind of question and this question that makes James such a vital book in our Bible. Because he comes to us, he comes to the church, he comes to those who profess Christ, and he's not explaining to us how to become Christians. He's not speaking to us of of how we can be saved. He's coming to the church, and he's telling us that believing in the gospel makes a profound difference. Some of you may be familiar with the reformer Martin Luther's opinion of the book of James. He infamously called it the Epistle of Straw. Now, by the end of his life, especially, he was very clear how much he liked James. It was the inspired word of God, it did belong in the, in, in the Bible. And yet, he did call it an Epistle of Straw. And what he meant by that was if you were building a house, it may not be the first material you grab. If the key question of human beings, which is the key question of religion, and listen, we ask this question in so many different ways, but that question is, what must I do to be saved? What must I do to be okay? What must I do in order to to craft some kind of meaning for my existence? I'm also not going to start with the book of James. It's not Romans. It's not Galatians. It's not one of the gospels. Um, There's not much doctrine It doesn't really proclaim the person and work and glories of Christ. It doesn't expound the the beauty and riches of the gospel of grace, but it's doing something different. It's presenting us a picture of Christian faith, of, of, of faith on the ground. James is showing us how we are to live as those who are born of God's will by God's word. He's showing us the danger of a false faith and false religion. He's telling us there is this possibility that some will profess faith, and it doesn't make any difference at all. And what does James call that kind of faith? False. It is false. And so we're going to turn to James to answer that question that I think can haunt us at times, which is, does this make any difference at all? Last week, we began unpacking the shape of Christian wisdom. This week, we we turn to unpack the shape of Christian faith. What is the shape that our lives are supposed to take as followers of Jesus? So three points as we move through our passage this morning. We are to be people who receive, respond, and resemble and maybe we could kind of frame that as a question. And this would be my challenge. Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm heeding this challenge too when we leave this place, is to ask this question, does my faith make any difference, is to ask the question, am I, am I receiving? Am I responding? And am I resembling? And we'll, and we'll see what that looks like. We'll, we'll unpack what that means. All right, so first of all, am I receiving? To be uh, the, the shape of the Christian life, the, the, the shape of faithfulness, it looks like a life of someone who receives. All right, so last week I mentioned how James is as close as we get to New Testament wisdom literature. Verse 19, he doesn't get any more wisdom-like than this passage. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. He sounds just like Proverbs ten nineteen. When words are many, transgression is not lacking, but whoever restrains his lips is prudent. Proverbs 14, 9, whoever is slow to anger has great understanding, but he who has a hasty temper exalts folly. Let me throw in Ecclesiastes 7, 9, be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools. And then James contributes his voice to this chorus of wisdom. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Now, I don't think this has ever reflected reality in a fallen, sin-stained, sin-cursed world. But I'm wondering if in our day and age it has ever been as counter to our culture. You read a, a story on a news media website, right? You read through the story, you scroll down to the bottom of the story. What do you have at the bottom of the story? Comments. You read the story, you get angry... And now they're telling you, go ahead and and lend your voice into this chorus of anger. It's the formula of talk radio. Are your endorphins flowing with rage? We want to hear from you, the listener. This is the kind of spirit that exalts folly. This is not a wise society. Be slow to anger. Anger is tricky. Anger is hard. Anger requires wisdom. You know, on the one hand, anger is a good thing, right? Anger is our natural response to that which isn't right. It is our natural response to injustice. Like if you see pictures of of elderly people and mothers and children in sleeping bags in a subway station in Ukraine, and you don't feel a little angry, your moral compass is off. That is worthy of our anger. But the problem is that most of the time, we're not angry about that kind of stuff. Most of the time, anger in our hands is not a good thing. According to one writer, the reason for this is anger is burdened by self importance, self assertion, intolerance, and stubbornness. Our self justifying impulse is to wave the flag of righteous anger, but we're better, we're wiser to have a little suspicion of our own hearts. I've heard so often, especially growing up in the church, this kind of quick defense of anger that invokes Jesus. You know, anger, you know, Jesus, he flipped over tables, he drove out the money changers in the temple. Yeah, Jesus got angry, but remember, Jesus had perfect anger speed. We tend to love talking about the existence of righteous anger, and we overlook look, the clear teaching of Scripture that says the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. The anger of man, the anger of myself, the anger of you, more often than not, isn't it just self-indulgent? And so we need to slow down. We need to put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness. Remember, Jesus had to put none of that aside. But we need to put away sin. We need to receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. So how do we become quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to anger? It's never enough to put away sin. We have to put on righteousness. And James says you do this by being a hearer, a receiver of God's word. You need to live out of God's word. You need to marinate in it. You need to steep in God's word so that when you are poured out, right, the world will will pour us out. Um, We aren't just clear water. We're not just this kind of faint yellow liquid, but we are a rich, full-bodied gospel brew. We need to be in the word. That's my analogy. James goes with a different analogy. He uses agricultural pictures. This idea of an implanted word, it it echoes Jesus' teaching on the parable of the soils from Mark 4. If you remember that story that Jesus told, you have a farmer who, who spreads out some seed and some of the seed goes into hard soil, it doesn't take. Some of it goes into weedy ground and the, the weeds grow and it chokes out the, the, what, what grows up. Some of it just falls on the walking path and birds come and just eat the seed. But then, of course, some seed falls in good soil. And where the seed falls in the good soil, it produces a harvest of righteousness. I think this is what James is picking up on. In verse 18, we are born according to the word. That's what we looked at last week. We're born according to the word, and our lives are to be marked by a life of continually receiving this word because that's where the harvest will grow. The word that saves is the word that nourishes. The word that saves is the word that nourishes. Keep going with the agricultural metaphors. We need to weed out sin and receive the implanted word. We need to uproot the sins we are aware of in our lives. This is not about salvation. It's not uproot your sin so that you can make yourself acceptable in order to receive God. It's you who are born by the word, live a life of repentance and faith. This is the order that we would expect, turn away from your sin and then turn toward Christ. It's what we do in our service, in our time of cleansing. We confess our sins, which is our effort as a community to uproot our sins in order to receive Christ as he's offered to us in the gospel. To be a hearer of God's word is to have increasing hunger and attentiveness to the word of God. And yet how often do we neglect the word? So remember my question, does being a Christian make any difference? If we are not in the word, if we don't attend the means of grace, which is where we receive the word preached and and the word in the sacraments, if we don't attend to the word, then does it make any difference? And I think to put it bluntly, no. 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 We receive a constant diet of information and content without feasting on God's word. I mean, I only got 30 minutes a week. Without feasting on God's word, we will just start to look like the content that we consume. And so is it any surprise that we might think this doesn't make much of a difference? The life of faith begins with being a receiver of God's word, to subject yourself to the word, to be quick to listen. Um, That doesn't mean just being a good conversation partner or making sure you hear all the sides of the story. That's true wisdom. That's worldly wisdom. No, James just finished talked about how we are born by the word, and so receive and hear that word. The implanted word takes root deep within us and it transforms us. It brings conviction of sin and assurance of mercy. It builds up faith and creates new life and it creates a harvest of good fruit that follows. So what is the shape of the faithful life? It begins by receiving. We have to receive God's word. But it doesn't just mean receiving. We also have to respond. James tells us the shape of the faithful life is also in our response. What do we do with this word? So take a look at verse 22 illustration looking into a mirror because one of the things he talks about here is you know what is the purpose of a mirror and it's not just to get a reflection back at you which is true right james is saying the point of a mirror is to make adjustments the point of the mirror is to look see something that needs to be fixed and then respond and fix what you see So, some of you looked into a mirror and maybe uh, ladies you saw your makeup was smudged and so what did you do you fixed it we look into mirrors and we see our hair maybe is standing up in the back. And what do we do? We, we, we put it down. Or we see we have a stain on our pants. And we go, no, these are the pants I wanted to wear today. But do we respond or do we not respond? Because if you look into a mirror, you notice your hair is standing up in the back. By the way, my hair could be standing up. I hope it's not, but it could be. Uh, if my hair is standing up in the back and I see that and go, oh, no, and don't fix it, why did I waste time looking in a mirror? If you look into a mirror and see that you missed a button and you you don't care and you just kind of move on, first of all, you do you. That's great. But in the future, don't waste time looking in a mirror. You can skip that step. So what's James saying? It's a tough word. It's pointless to read God's word, see changes that need to take place, and not do anything about it. That's what James says is a self-deceiving reading of scripture it's pointless to say you follow jesus but don't listen to him and here's the thing in a post-christian context which is where we are this will be everywhere there is still a large population of people who believe they are christians because they are americans there is still a large population who believe they are christians because they hold to particular political principles And James' word for for that environment is those are self-deceiving people. It's pointless to read that anger doesn't produce the righteousness of God and then immediately justify why we're so cranky and angry all the time. It's pointless to read flee sexual immorality and then return again and again to certain websites. It's pointless to read speak evil of no one, avoid quarreling, Be gentle and show perfect courtesy toward all, and then turn and gossip and slander about a brother or sister. It's pointless to read, honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, and honor the emperor, and indulge in the current obscene and crass political behavior of 2022. We're lying to ourselves if we, keep, if we read, keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have, and then we go and indulge in retail therapy. Or to read, you were bought with a price and so glorify God in your body, and yet we celebrate the rallying call of, of modern Western culture that says, no, I get to define for myself meaning and existence and freedom. James says that true Christians increasingly, not perfectly, but increasingly obey the word. We grow in our sensitivity to the word. We grow in our humility and our dependence on Christ. So please hear the problem, because this can be confused, and, and it's a deadly mistake to confuse this. Please hear the problem. The problem is not opening up the word of God and seeing your sin. That is not a problem. That is a good thing, because when we see our sin, that's how we see Christ, to open up the word and see our sin is not a problem because Christ died once for all for that problem, past, present, and future. The problem, James's pastoral urgency, is that we look into the word, see our sin, and we leave disinterested. That's the tragedy. That's the problem. And James brings out the most tragic part of all of it because he reminds us the word brings freedom. He calls the law perfect. It's the law of liberty. The law holds out the good life to us. Sin by its nature is destructive. It's life-sucking. It's relationship-killing. It leads you away from the heart of God. It's so natural for us to think of the law as as functioning like prison bars that that restrain us and constrain us. But when our eyes are open, when we see the heart of God for us, in Christ who is for us, those prison bars don't look like prison bars anymore. It's scaffolding. And it holds us together. We're told every day freedom is the total lack of restraint and constraint. When freedom really is living in the power of who we were created to be with God for God by God shape of the faithful life we receive the word we respond to the word and maybe the umbrella that goes over all of this is that we resemble the God who saves us we resemble the God who saves us James finishes up here in this section with with, with a test and this is verse 26 if you think you are religious, remember, we can deceive ourselves. Here, here's the test. Your, your life will look like this. To have the life of God in us and remain unchanged is unthinkable. And so James says, here is what pure, genuine Religion looks like. Now, oftentimes the word religion, and I think we can do this too, religion can be a bad thing. Religion can be this kind of external formalism. Um, hypocrisy comes to mind. Religion here for James is just saying what you believe about God and the universe, how it's expressed. And so, what you believe about God, what, what is distilled into your life, that is your religion. How your life is, is, is spelled out on, on a day to day basis. And here is what pure. Genuine religion looks like. He gives us three tests of pure religion, and all of these tests are tests of resemblance. Is your life taking the shape of the God who saves you? First test is speech. Verse 26. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. This could be unpacked, I think, at length, because such a key part of being made in the image of God is that we are speakers because God reveals himself Um, chiefly as a speaker. He speaks creation into existence. He speaks redemption. He speaks, and that which he speaks becomes reality. Well, we are made in his image, which means that we have just incredible power through our words. Not God-like power, but but we reflect God, we image God, and so we also, in our words, have the power of life and death. And so James is saying, are you able to control those words? Or do your words cause damage? Do you use words to to bring death, which is maybe to tear people down, um, to to create shame and to bring shame to people? Or do you use your words to give life? James, throughout this book, will emphasize the power of words. Last week, we talked about self-justifying speech that blames God for sin. Later, James will address flattery, careless speech, a tongue that blesses God, turns around and curses your neighbor. He'll speak against slander and judgmentalism. And again, we image a God who powerfully speaks, and we too have that power. We have the power to model repentance and grace in an age of relentless, merciless judgment and criticism. We also have the ability to speak to that which is true and honorable and just and pure and lovely and commendable and excellent. Philippians 4:8. First test is speech. Second test. We also imitate God in our care for the helpless and vulnerable. Verse 27. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. This is still true. You could also basically say, think of the most vulnerable populations in a particular society. That is who we need to attend to, to serve with kindness those who have nothing to give in return. There's no transaction in this relationship. It's mercy for the sake of mercy. It's pure kindness. It's to come along those who can give you nothing in return, those who are vulnerable and needy. In other words, it is to become like God. One of the common refrains of who God is, which is just so remarkable, is that he is the God who is the almighty creator, maker of heaven and earth. Everything is in his hands. All Everything belongs to him, and yet at the same exact time, he is the God who is for the lowly. He's for those on the bottom. Those who have no voice have the voice of God thundering on their behalf. And so not only are we called to be on the side of God, I would also include our spiritual reality informs our flesh and blood value system. To grasp the gospel is to come face to face with our own poverty, our own helplessness, our own need, and that immediately informs our real life day-to-day value system. It will change, it has to change. And then we have the final test, third test. Holiness, pursue holiness. James says also this, to keep oneself unstained from the world. To be aware of the world's system of thought and values. To avoid thinking and acting in accordance with the value system of the society around us. And here is the question that has to haunt the church in every age. Why are most churches bad at doing both well? Why are most churches doing ba- bad at doing both well? Caring for the vulnerable and pursuing holiness. Pure religion involves care for the needy and vulnerable, and pure religion also must have the pursuit of holiness, and yet we can often see the kind of cultural divide in our own churches. And so we have those who profess Christ, who who care for the poor and needy, but they're embarrassed about chastity, as if that's an old-fashioned word. Um, they're embarrassed about maybe biblical sexual ethics or maybe some are, are really concerned with biblical sexual ethics and they're really concerned with holiness, but they really don't want to be associated with social justice. Do you know what happened to both groups? They both got stained by the world because the world set the categories, not God's word. Now, James' is pure religion is the pattern of the life of the church. I mean, this is what we see in church history. It's the early church that rescued infants abandoned on trash heaps, that visited those with no families, who also had this bizarre commitment to countercultural holiness. That's the pattern of James that we are to slide right into. A commitment to standing up for the dignity of the least of these, along with a commitment to live godly, sober, chaste lives. In a world that says you need to be authentic and listen to your heart and live only for you and whatever makes you happy, we do insist a different way of understanding freedom, of knowing that we are not our own but belong to God. Entrusting ourselves to his word and at the end of the day, resembling the one who saves us. It's a heavy word, right? If I had to preach one sermon, I probably wouldn't preach on this passage. I'd pick a different one. It is a heavy word. James is teaching us the way of the flourishing Christian life. And maybe James is like a wake-up call to those of us who can so easily sleepwalk. But he is also giving us this invitation to the abundant life which Jesus extended to us. A life here and now that that can be impacted. Now I want to make sure, as we wrap up here, I want to make sure you receive this word rightly. Rightly. Because I think you will be beat up by this word if you hear James saying, by your own strength and power, you need to do these things in order to be acceptable by God. Because you can't. And that will crush you. You will beat up, you will be beat up if, if you think there is something that you can do to clean yourself up that maybe you can, can foster a pure religion that you will, whereby you will be approved by God. And that can't happen. That's not the message. And so instead, we need to ask where will we find the power to respond rightly to the word of God with obedience? How will we become meek, people of wise speech and compassion and holiness? What will keep us from being deceived? We need to know what kind of father we have. That's where we start. We need to know what kind of father we have, the one who for nothing but his good pleasure has called us to new life by the power of his word. A father who has called those who are far off near. He has called those of us who are, who are enslaved to sin and death. He has called us his sons and daughters. He has called those of us who stand condemned in our own works, justified to the work of his son Jesus, who obeyed the perfect law of God Completely. And so in light of who the Father is for you, in light of his love for you, that's what we're responding from. That's why it's this life of faith. We give our anger to the one who holds all things together. We bridle our tongue knowing that God only in his infinite mercy and grace speaks a word of love over me. Still doesn't make any sense. It's grace. But that informs my own speech. What will keep us from being deceived? It's resting in Jesus, who we sang was strong and kind. Resting in Jesus, who received the word from his father and did all that was commanded of him. Jesus, who spoke with perfect truth and love and grace. Jesus, who visited the poor and visited the sick and the outcast. Jesus, who kept himself unstained from the world. And yet, instead of fleeing the world, he handed his own body over to be killed. This means that the Father's fundamental word to us, which is our starting place, is that we are loved and accepted in Christ. Righteous not for anything we bring to the table, but because of what Jesus brought to the table for us. And so we go back to our question, does any of this make any difference? If that story is true, yes. And that story is true. It makes every difference, every practical difference that we can leave here and ask, am I receiving this word of Christ, responding to it, resembling the God who has saved me? My prayer is that God would mold us more and more into the shape of the faithful life, a life filled with his word that transforms us by the power of the Holy Spirit that creates men, women, and children who resemble not the world around us, but the God who called us who saved us, and who keeps us. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would be so present among us, helping us to look into this perfect law of liberty, Not a list of things that we must do. If that were true, it would be a law of death. It would be a law of slavery. It would be a law that stands over us, condemning us. And yet, through Jesus, the one who fulfilled the law, it is the law of the good life. It's the law of joy. It's the law of peace. And we know this is true because it just describes Christ and who he is. And so, Lord, would that law of liberty be a beautiful thing um, because we know who we are, because we know who the Father is for us, because we know who the Son is for us, and we know his work, and we know the Spirit brings those realities to bear in our lives. Lord, would we uh, not just leave this place um, convicted, Uh, Would it be a healthy conviction, but not one that drives us deeper into ourselves, but but a conviction that drives us outward? Outward, back to the gospel. Back to the realities that, Lord, we confess we, we, we so feebly believe most of the time. And so, Lord, help us to grasp these greater realities. And we pray this confident, even confusingly, but confident, that you are conforming us more and more into the image of Jesus, your son. And Lord, we pray all these things in his name. Amen.